Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Today, no matter what you're facing, you're not facing it alone. You're facing it with an enthroned King Jesus, who is Lord of glory. Amen? And may we keep that fresh perspective. If you have a Bible, I invite you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is going to be my assignment for today. And uh, this is a one-off message, so we've been in this series called Lights. I'm not going to preach to you about Christmas today. I'm going to preach to you what God has put on my heart. I believe it's going to be a message Uh, It's my hope and intent to be one of recalibration as you enter into 2022. And I do believe that God has clearly led me through this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this is Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, I've told you before, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is 3rd. And the way we know this is because in Paul's Corinthian correspondence, in 1 Corinthians, he responds to their response. So he had written them a letter, they respond, and now he responds And in his response, he communicates to them the heart, the design of God for this community. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as you're turning there, I would like to uh, remind us, we have and live in a generation of Americans who, for the most part, totally distrust authority. Many will say that that's because our generation has inherited the legacy of Vietnam. And if you call it a legacy, Nixon with Watergate, we remember things like President Clinton building an entire justification of lying to the American people about his marital infidelity based on his, if I can say it this way, tortured parsing of the word is. If you remember him before the grand jury saying, what is, is, and how do we look at the word is? And so we have this suspicion or what we call a suspicious hermeneutic in how we look at leadership in America. We're pretty sure that whatever institutions or powerful people tell us is not the truth, including Fauci, and and we believe that somehow it's spun to try to, again, protect their their own interests. We've seen how institutions that claim to represent truth and morality use those powers to perpetuate unjust practices and to protect the powerful more and more and to benefit themselves and to not benefit anyone else but themselves. We live in America where we've long since given up on, a, on a objective, unbiased media, where everything we see feels like fake news on some level because we're way aware as Americans of how selective and how biased everything we hear is, right? Don't believe me, watch Fox News, right? It's amazing to me, I watch Fox News, I don't watch it at all, but I'll turn it on, then I'll turn on CNN or MSNBC, and I get the reality that we are living in two totally different worlds just based upon the perspectives, right? It's always funny to me to hear news commentators speak disparagingly of the media. And they say things like, well, now media or big media will try to make you think. And I'm like, you are big media, right? You are talking about yourself, right? Like there is no big media outside of the anchors that are big media, right? That we see each and every day. If you're in a position of authority, you're likely to struggle to maintain credibility going into 2022, Distrust of our authority is in our bloodstream as Americans. We're born with deep distrust. I mean, think about it. Our entire country was built on not trusting authority. 
The whole inception of the United States was built on a mistrust of authority. Sorry, Britain, no taxation without representation. We're leaving. You can keep the tea, right? And then when our forefathers set up our government, many of them being deists, they created a three-branch governmental system, legislative, judicial, and executive branches, where one branch can cancel out the other two just because we don't trust any of them. This is the world you and I live in. My point is, for both reasons good and bad, we distrust authority. And of course, this attitude affects how we view leadership within the church. And sadly, and I will say it is sadly, sadly, we see a lot of the same abuse of power in church that we see in the world. We see TV pastors stealing money. We see Catholic priests, right, uh, abusing children. We see church leaders covering up pastoral abuse. Many of you may not know this, but in 2021, pretty much the whole year was spent with large denominational leaders where something they had to deal with daily was churches in our country who have prioritized the reputation of the institution over the safety of a victim. And we were going to save face with that institution rather than side with the victim. So that makes Paul's explanation of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and his view of leadership in the church that much more important. I mean, it is a staggering passage when you really begin to see what happens. Start with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, this is how one should regard us. Us, by the way, there means church leaders. Now, let me be clear right up front before we keep reading. The Bible is actually pro-leadership. The Bible is actually pro-authority. It says that all of us as believers should be submitted on some level. But see, there's good authority and there's bad authority. And in this chapter, what Paul's going to do is give us four characteristics of good authority in the church. Now listen to me. I want you to hear me because I don't want you to dismiss me. If you are a leader, these are what you should aspire to be. And I mean that as a leader of any kind. If you serve as an entrepreneur in a business, if you serve in a capacity within your coworkers or your leadership as a parent, if you're a leader in influencing people in any way, shape, or form, I want to tell you today, today what Paul says is true of him should also be true of us. That these are four characteristics of good authority. You say, well, I'm not a leader. How is this going to apply to me? Well, these are traits that you should champion and that you should affirm and elevate in the church. Y'all, I think the time has passed where evangelical churches have a tendency to elevate leaders who are high on charisma and low on character, and we've not learned our lesson. We keep on buying into leaders who are high on charisma and low on personal character, and then they fall, and they bring reproach to the name of Christ, and then we find a new leader, and we lift them high up if they've got charisma and little character, and we perpetuate the cycle and have done it century after century. So when Paul gets to this passage, he says, more importantly, all of us play the role of leader in somebody else's life. Maybe you're a parent. Maybe you lead a connect group. Maybe you teach kids. Maybe you run the nursing floor at your hospital. Maybe you started your business. Maybe you're a shift leader at a restaurant. Maybe you're just trying to be a good influence in someone else's life, but you're leading others. And what Paul says is true of him should be true of us. So let's look at four characteristics of good leadership. The first two characteristics come from the first verse. He said, this is one, how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Point number one, a Christian leader is a servant of Christ. A servant of Christ. You might be a leader of others. You might even have authority over them. But your fundamental identity is that of a servant of Christ. Now that means a couple of things practically. Let me give you two of them. I went and did a word search for you last night, just on Logos. And uh, I came to the realization that in your Bible, the word leader appears five times. The word servant appears 1,101 times. If you want any kind of idea on the type of leadership God espouses, leader appears five times, servant appears 1,101 times. As a servant, it is not about your will or your desires for the people you lead. It's about his will and his desires. A servant doesn't execute his own will. A servant doesn't execute her own will. He follows the will of another. Interestingly enough, this was fascinating to me, the word that that servant that Paul uses here is not the word he always uses in the New Testament. Many of you are familiar with this word. It's called doulos. It's what we translate servant or slave. And that's normally how Paul always uses the word servant. But instead, Paul doesn't choose to use that word here. He uses a Greek word called hyperatos. And hyperatos as a servant literally means under rower, R-O-W-E-R. Now, before the Industrial Revolution, you had under rowers. In the common galley of a ship, if you were a rower, you were chained to a common bench where you and all the rest of the people on the bench would grab the oar and you would oar together. You would row together to steam engine with your own arms to power that ship. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that Jesus is the captain. He is the coxswain. My job is to row and beat with him. Have any of you ever seen a crew team before? The coxswain calls out the beat, right? Normally, there's rowers that are in unison with him. And the coxswain, the pilot, is the only one facing forward. And all the rowers don't even get to see where they're rowing to. They turn their back to where they're going. And all their job is to do is to look at their pilot. Is to look at their coxswain. And they are to row and beat with their pilot. They are to row and beat with their coxswain. Paul said, you are a servant. You're an under rower with Jesus Christ. The point is, if you're going to be a servant in the leader, leadership or body of Christ, you are called to be an under rower in line with the coxswain. The mission statement of our church begins with, we exist to gather people to Jesus Christ. At every point in this church, we've tried to say, God, what do you want from this church? God, where do you want this church to go? Not God, where do I want this church to go? Not God, what do we collectively desire for the church to go? It's not about my agenda. It's not about your agenda. It's about his agenda. His agenda. So first, it means not my will, but his will. But second, here's the second aspect of servant. Being a servant of Christ means that I or whatever leader sees the group of people he or she leading as Christ people, not his or her own. We see who we lead as Christ. For example, I know that God is the owner of this church. He's the chief shepherd of dwelling place, meaning this church doesn't exist for me or for my purposes. I am quite frankly, I know it's hard for us to get this in our Western world, but I am quite frankly very dispensable. I am very dispensable. Meaning God could look tomorrow and say, you're finished. I don't believe he will. I think he wants me to be here for life, if I'm 110% honest with you. But I am dispensable. God could do away with me. means I don't look at this church 
through the lens of what's best for Craig Mosgrove. I look at this church, what's best for Jesus? And listen, if what's best for Jesus goes the opposite of what's best for Craig Mosgrove, then you leave Craig Mosgrove and you follow Jesus. He's the coxswain. He's the pilot. He's the one that we are to serve. I think one of the best examples of this is John the Baptist. You remember at one point in John the Baptist's ministry where Jesus was starting to get more popular than John? And John was the cousin, right? And he had his own disciples. And, and all of a sudden, this new guy shows up and he does a couple of miracles and he's got these cool little sayings and parables and preaches from a hillside and he starts stealing the disciples. So they come up to John and they say, John, you a little upset about this? What do you think about this, John? Right? Doesn't this bother you? This Jesus has come to upstage you? And John the Baptist responds in a way that every leader should respond. What does he say? No, no, no. He must increase and I must decrease. He then compared his role of leadership to being the best man at a wedding. Let me explain. How many of you ever played that role? How many of you men ever played that role before, the best man before? You know, in a church like this, a lot of weddings, you know, sometimes you ask people, you ever played? Yeah, I've played the best man 30 times. I'm like, bro, dude, you need to limit your friends, okay? You, you don't need to be the second dude 30 times before you're the dude. You know what I'm saying? It's like, that's a lot of tux rentals. You would have should have bought it a long time ago. You about, you about $3,000 in debt right now just off of tux rentals. You know what I'm saying? So, so but, but you understand what a best man does in a wedding, right? I mean, a best man has an important role, but if he's doing his job, you shouldn't notice him, right? You shouldn't notice him. Tra- tra- traditionally, in a Jewish uh, wedding, the best man's only role is to support the groom, to make sure the wedding goes as planned. Like, no one should leave the ceremony talking about the best man, right? You ever gone to a wedding ceremony? Everybody's like, man, did you see that best man? Do. Besides the single girl, she's about the only one if you don't have a ring on the left hand, you know what I'm saying? But, but no one else is saying, hey, the, the, man, I, did you check out the best man, right? We don't do that. But there is, there is an important moment, an awesome moment in every single ceremony. And it's not when I deliver the little marriage sermon. In fact, I'm quite aware. When I get up there to talk, ain't nobody listening to me. In fact, they won't remember one word I say, and I'm fully there for it. They don't care what I say. They don't really care if I'm saying anything. They won't remember what I say because their eyes are fully focused on two people. They're focused on that man that's standing here, or this side, and the woman that's standing on this side, and that should be the case. Now imagine... Right? What happens in that greatest moment? The back door opens, or in our case, we have a lot of outdoor weddings. You come through the little arch, and all eyes go to the... There has not been a bride in the history of humanity that did not look splendid in that moment. And all eyes are on her, but then where do the eyes go? They jump back to the groom, and they're going to see if that jock will crack. Right? They're going to see if he sheds a tear. What happens? And all their eyes are focused on these two people. Now imagine if you go to a wedding. Imagine. And all of a sudden, you have a best man that at the moment, the pastor says, all rise, or everybody stand up. What if that best man kind of leans in front of that groom, and he's looking out over the center aisle right there, and he starts winking and flirting with the, the, the bride as she comes down, and he, can you give me your digits? You know, you, well, what's going to happen to that, that best man that does that in front of that groom? He's going to get Liam neeson trachea punched neck punch that voice box is going to be inserted right in the movie taken i mean liam neeson went all across europe trachea people i mean just voice box chopping people right in that whole entire movie right it was amazing i mean neck chops he gave but that's what the guy's gonna do why how dare you 
to distract the bride from the bridegroom and get the attention on you. Paul says if you're a pastor or leader and you are distracting the church you serve away from the focus of the groom, how dare you get out of the way of the groom? You are there for one purpose, to point the bride to the groom. You're to step out of the way. You want the bride's focus on the groom, Jesus. You don't want the bride's focus on you. You're there to simply be the water hose to allow the water to flow. You are there to be the sign pointing to the real whopper, if you know what I'm saying. You're not there to be recognized. Listen, as a servant of Christ, if this ceremony goes perfectly and I'm invisible, then I have done my job. That's what he says a leader is, a servant of Christ, a true servant. Now, one of the ways that I've had to learn to apply this is in church planning. Because in church planning, there's a lot of painful moments, just a vulnerable moment. One of the most painful things in church planning, over six years that I've had to learn, and I learned before that in pastoring other contexts, but one of the most painful things is just watching people leave. Well, let me up the ante, the most painful thing is watching a family who comes to the church and then they leave our church to go to a more comfortable church. It is is horrible pain. And it happens. And in that, one of the things that's really helped me through the years is to recognize that, listen to me, if people can leave, you gotta let them leave. Why? Because they're not mine in the first place. They're his. They're Jesus's. And though we rarely know what happens in transition, God always knows what's happening in transition. And it doesn't get easier. doesn't mean it's easier. doesn't mean it's easy to watch people. But that's one of the ways I've applied it. Lord, I'm just a servant of this church and a servant of you. I read a very famous pastor in the 1800s named Charles Simeon. And he built this big church. And God raised up a younger preacher who could really preach better than him. A whole lot better than him. And the problem was that Simeon wasn't quite ready to retire yet. So in reading this biography... He prayed about it, and Simeon knew it was better for the church, so he stepped aside, and he said it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And I read that several months ago, and I thought, you know what? I hope when that day comes for me, I have that same attitude. I hope when God says to me, Craig, you are not the best person for this role. I'd like for you to move. Then I'd move. Then I'd step out of the way. Say, Lord, what do you desire? Listen to me. The question for you, listen to me. If you are in a signed leadership position right now, do you see that leadership position as service? Hear me. Do you see your leadership place as a place of power over the benefit of, or the power over others for the benefit of yourself? Or do you see that place of service and power to others on behalf of Christ for the benefit of other people? If you are a boss, listen to me, do you see your place And your boss, your leadership is a place to lift up employees on behalf of Christ to bless them and touch their lives. If you manage a company, is your goal right now in managing your company to do something that blesses society and your city and helps make people's lives better and more full of joy? If you're a parent, do you see yourself as a temporary stand-in, a fallible temporary stand-in of Christ's tool to grow your kids for his purposes, ready to open your hands and let them go wherever he wants them to go? Yo, I know that sounds so obvious, but my wife and I, we've pastored for almost two decades now. I cannot tell you how many students I have pastored whose parents, when God puts his hand on their kid to call them to be a missionary, the parents say no. And I look at those parents and say, 
how dare you try to tell God what he can do with one of his kids? Parents, those are not your kids. My son is not my kid. It is God's kid. And God will do with Knox what God wants to do. And if I try to stand in the way of what God wants to do, how ashamed should I be? I'm a simple, temporary stand-in to grow the purposes of God in those kids and to get out of the way with what God desires for them to be. The point is that any leadership position must be first foremost seen as an act of service to Christ where we're simply just tools in the hands of God. That ties into Paul's next thing. He says a Christian leader is not just a servant, but a Christian leader is a steward. Everybody say steward. Now I want to focus on the steward one for just a moment. He said this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now the mysteries of God that Paul is referring to here is not whether Adam had a belly button or not. And it's not whether there's an area 51. I'm glad I got one laugh. That's all. I, I just needed one laugh. Whether there's an area 51 in the book of Numbers, right? The mysteries of God refers to the gospel of God. If you read chapters 1 through 3, the mysterious thing God has been doing all along in sending his son to die on a cross and to reconcile the world to himself. It's called the mystery, which is kept in secret from the foundation of the world. So Paul says, listen, I didn't write those mysteries. God did. I'm just passing them along. Okay, I'm the mailman. Now, Paul doesn't use the analogy mailman. He uses an actually better analogy. He uses a similar word called steward. Now, that word is a fabulous, it's probably my favorite one-word description of a pastor. Paul uses the word oikonomos. If you were with us in our relaunch, September 2016, we preached a message series called oikos. Oikonomos means household manager. Probably my favorite description of a pastor. See, in those days, Big families had an overseer who oversaw the affairs of the house. They managed the kids. Come on, mamas. That's because it was all private sector education, right? There was no public education. They taught the kids, whether he or she taught the kids. They, 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 they took care of the property but, and oversaw the affairs of the house. But even though he managed it, even though he was hyper-involved, they weren't his kids and it wasn't his property. His job was to execute the master's will or the father's will. Here's what that means for me as a preacher. I don't decide what God's kids eat. The father and the mother choose that. My job is just to prepare a meal. This book, the book in your lap, is what our father has prescribed for God's kids to eat. My job is just to deliver it to you. If you don't like some of it, take it up with dad. That's what I tell people all the time. I'm not here to prescribe the meal. The meal's already been prescribed. I'm here to deliver the meal. Now listen to me. That doesn't mean the preacher can't be creative in how he presents it. No cook goes to a pantry and says, okay, let's work through this systematically from left to right. Okay, green beans, green beans, green beans, green beans. Next night, potatoes, potatoes. No, we use our creativity to pull different sections of the pantry and create an appealing meal. That's what I do. I create different sections of the pantry to create a meal that becomes appetizing for something for people to eat to grow. But don't make any mistake about it. I'm just a mailman. I don't get to decide what God's people eat. And we've got a movement in America today where I just want my preacher to serve up twinkies and hot pockets all the time well too bad because dad knows that kids need to be healthy and in order to be healthy he's got to prescribe vegetables so don't hate on me I'm just the steward I'm just the mailman of the mysteries of Christ so he says servant and steward by the way leaders I want you to perk up because in the next three verses 
He's going to tell us how these first two words address something we all face as leaders. Are you ready? Criticism. Believe me, if you're a leader of any kind, you're going to get it. Good and bad. Listen to me. Criticism is the cost of influence. If you're going to influence people, you will be an object of criticism. You will. I want you to see, Paul gets it and he understands criticism. Now this is going to help us so much. Paul says anytime you get criticism, you need to view it through the lens of servant and steward. Check it out. Watch what Paul says. Because I'm a servant of Christ and a steward. Watch this. Watch this next one. But with me, because I'm a steward, it what? Is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. What's he say? Verse 4, why? Because it is the Lord who judges me. At the end of the day, I don't answer to you. I answer to him. And as a Christian leader, you shouldn't be surprised by criticism either. Y'all, we are charged to represent Christ in a world that murdered him. You're going to be murdered. People say, I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Do you remember what happened to the hands and feet of Jesus? They got nailed. Now, don't be like our brother Andy and impel yourself on purpose, okay? Through your trapezium. Don't do that, all right? People will do that for you. You don't have to nail your own hands and your own feet. People in the body of Christ will do it for you, okay? I didn't say the world. I said the body of Christ. Worst treatment I've ever received in life has always been from the church, never from lost people, right? People around me, people who name the name of Jesus. It's the reality. You're going to get criticism. Listen to me. It's going to happen. And Paul says, listen, Jesus said, I'm a better version of you. They criticize me. Listen, so when criticism comes, I want you just to keep your focus on me because you only answer to me. Now, let me be clear. And this is a very important caveat. I welcome a lot of criticism in my life because I know that God sometimes uses other people. Sometimes it's my friends, but sometimes it's adversaries to point out shortcomings and inconsistencies in my own life. I'm fallible, and I know that. I understand that. So I need the eyes of other people, and I want to remain open to the eyes of other people for all of my leadership. Over the years, I can't tell you how many countless people have spoken feedback into my life to make me the leader I am or the man I am. But one of the things even I've tried to do on our team, and our team will tell you, I've tried to lead them in being open to criticism, not just open to it, but to actually seek it out. You say, Craig, why? Because Proverbs 26, 12 says, if you're wise in your own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than for you. If, if, I, if I close off criticism, I am worse than a fool, Proverbs says. Meaning I'm, I'm closing myself off to the, the design of God, what God wants to speak to my life. But listen to me, even though even though we have to be open to criticism, at the end of the day, as a servant and steward, my soul only answers to God. Hear me, look, if you can get beyond your insecurities and let God heal you, watch this, watch this. I'm telling you, this is so powerful. When you get beyond your insecurities and you know you're a servant and steward, then what happens is criticism will become a tool in the hand of God to help you discover whose glory you're laboring for. Because if you take it personally, you're still laboring for your glory. It's when you stop taking criticism personal, you know whose glory you labor for. And so God then uses that criticism to help us understand who we're really laboring for, who we're really seeking to please. People sometimes look at me and my wife and they say, you seem to get a lot of criticism, how do you handle that? 
And in our last church, we got a whole lot of criticism. Longest standing Pentecostal congregation in North America, 110 years old, right? A lot of chiefs, very few Indians in that church. And I tell people, well, don't point it out. I'm trying not to pay attention to it, first of all, right? Don't point out the criticism. But truthfully, criticism bothers me just like it bothers you. I want people to like me. I'm a two. I'm a people pleaser. Meaning I don't wake up with a natural disposition to, to want people to be mad at me. That's not how I'm made. That's not how God created me. But I have this vision in the back of my mind. I don't know where it started, to be honest with you. When I was 18 and I started preaching, I'd get real nervous. Real nervous. And so I remember very early on in preaching, I'd have this vision. And I used to not be able to look at people in the face. I'd just kind of look right over the top of their heads in the back. And I'd get up to preach and I'd have this vision where God the Father would stand up at the bow of heaven. He would grab all the angels and everybody, come here, come here, come here, everybody. Look, this is Craig Mosgrove again. Boy, he's about to try it again. You know, he's about to make a fool of himself, you know. And, and then I would see, honestly, I would see the Father. And I would, it would be like I would hear him saying, you know what? That's Craig Mosgrove, and, and that's my boy. And he's doing what I told him to do. And he didn't ask me to call him into ministry. I went and called him into ministry, and I'm proud of him. And when I would get that vision, you know what it would do to me? It would be enough knowing that I'm pleasing the Father, to not be paralyzed when I keep disappointing people. So I would be able to continue and be sustained. Listen, you can't do God's will and keep everyone happy at the same time. You can't do it. You have to be willing to pay the price of criticism. You gotta know it comes with the territory. You got to know people are going to shoot arrows at you. You got to know it comes with what it means to be a leader. Listen, I gave up a long time ago. It's the best thing I ever gave up trying to manage everybody's opinions of me. That's exhausting. I won't make it in my marriage. I won't make it as a pastor. I certainly won't make it to the end being faithful to God. We're not called to do that. I perform for an audience of one. Every leader should do so. He said a Christian leader is a servant, is a steward. Number three, A Christian leader is a surrogate. They're all S's. I hope it helps you remember them. A surrogate. A Christian leader is not just a servant and a steward, but he's a surrogate. Oh, look at verse six. So powerful. Look at this powerful, powerful leadership principle. Paul said, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for my own benefit. No, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So you've got to understand in this whole section, chapters one through four, Paul's dealing with divisions in the church. And he said a lot of the divisions come in the Corinthian church because they're overly dependent on an earthly leader. Paul says, you need to stop that, Corinthians. You need to stop thinking more highly of leaders than you should. Earthly leaders are temporary stand-ins For Jesus, or even better, earthly leaders are instruments in his hand. And ultimately, he and he alone is responsible for your salvation. Yes, listen, God uses different people at different times in our lives. And it's not wrong to feel more connected to a certain leader than others. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying you go to a church first and foremost because of the hook. 
And the hook might be the pastor. The hook might be the preacher. I have people I listen to that I really connect with their preaching more than other people. There's nothing wrong with that. You might connect more with preaching in one person than another. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But you've got to realize that God is always the one working through them. You've got to think of it like a hand in a glove. If a, a skilled surgeon puts on a latex glove and performs a life-changing surgery on your aortic valve in your heart, the miracle is not in the glove. The miracle is in the hand that feels it. And anytime God blesses you through another person, it's not because of the glove. It's because of Christ who is in the glove. And the person, the leader, is just the glove. The person, the leader, is just the surrogate. And when God wants to bless you, he brings somebody into your life. And when the enemy wants to curse you, he brings somebody into your life. And you got to figure out which glove is from which source. That's what you have to understand. And God, the great surgeon, uses people for a time. He puts on the latex glove to bless you, to help you, to pull things out of you. But don't ever forget, it's always God. And as I've told you before, there's always going to be famous people in the church. They were in the early church. Peter and Paul and Apollos were the same type of celebrities at Corinth. And there is nothing wrong with feeling connected to one person more than other. But the problem is, is when we don't eventually transfer the roots of our identity off of that person and onto Christ. Or when you don't transfer the identity of dependence off of that person and onto Christ. When you're overly devoted to or committed to an earthly leader, that's not a sign of devotion. It's a sign of immaturity. I know it's not popular, but let me tell you, when you've read every book of the same leader, you've heard every sermon of the same leader, you are not a devotee, you are immature. And Paul makes that really clear. We're just focusing on one iota. Look how Paul starts this section. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. I've addressed you as people of the flesh. Watch this, as infants in Christ. For you are still, this is so powerful, for you still of the flesh. Where For while there's jealousy and flesh and, and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and believing and behaving in a human way? Watch, for when one says, well, I follow Paul. And the other says, well, I don't, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human, Paul says? Are you not being childish? Paul says your, earth, your dependence on an earthly leader is not a sign of your spiritual depth, but your spiritual immaturity. Again, the analogy of parenting here is great. For a while, we parents stand in the place of God with our kids. When my kids are toddlers, they learned everything they can learn about authority and care and love of God through me and their mother. That's it. That's my design. We're supposed to learn to love and to trust and obey God. Why? By learning to trust, love, and obey our parents. Did you know this is, by the way, that's why the fifth commandment is the fifth commandment? You know this, right? You know what the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments is? It's honor your mother and father. You know what the first four commandments are? Honor God. They're about your relationship to God. Keep the Sabbath. Don't worship any other gods. You know what the last five commandments are? Your relationship with others. What's the hinge commandment? The hinge commandment is honor your father and mother. Why? Because it's only in honoring our father and mother because they're earthly representations of God. So it's our relationship to our parents that bridges the gap to our relationship with God and others, which means you can't be wrong with your mom and dad and be right with God and your brother. That's why the fifth hinge commandment is to teach you, you have to relate to God like you're relating to your parents so that then you can relate to others the way God designs. And right in the smack middle of the Ten Commandments, God tells us, 
So that's good. That's awesome. But over time, we want our children to wean their faith off of us and to put it on God. And if they're not, they're not growing up. If your child's 18, 19, 20 years old and obeys you and depends on you as a parent like your God, they're not grown up. And I have pastored in students for two decades. I know a lot of parents who seem to want this. Parents in the church who tell their grown kids they can't do something or obey God. That's not the point of parenting. The point of parenting is for your kids to transfer their obedience off of you and onto God. And then you totally release them because they were never yours in the first place. They were good and perfect gifts to be given to you on loan. Listen, the goal of Christian parenting is to raise kids who are independently dependent on God. That's Christian parenting. To raise up kids who are not dependent on me for God, but are independently dependent on God. That's parenting. Paul says that's how we leaders are with you. In fact, Paul calls himself a spiritual father. Look what he says in verse 14. I'm writing you as my dear children. Look what Paul says. I became your dad in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I'm not here to be your leader or your savior or your foundation in your walk with God. I'm just here to get you to him. I'm gonna ask you a question that I asked our first gathering. And I mean this. Some of you are like, well, it's just hypothetical. I get it. But if I died tomorrow morning, if I didn't wake up tomorrow morning, hypothetical, rhetorical question, would you leave this church or would you stay? And if you said I'd probably stay, then good for you. You're grown up. Your allegiance is to this body. But if you're like, well, I'd leave. Well, that just shows with all due respect, you're a child. And you're still in it for you. And what you desire. And what I want. The point, the point that Paul says very clearly is there's nothing wrong with coming to a church or coming to a body because the preaching connects or the worship engages or you love the student ministries, but over time you have to put your roots into Christ and into his body and not a particular personality. Are you with me, Charlie? Is that okay to say? Is that not what we're battling in the West? People who are committed to a personality and not committed to a body. Paul said, I've applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. He said, who's Paul? Who is Craig Mosker? Who's Chad Craig? Who's any leader? We didn't die for you. You weren't baptized into our name. It's not our spirit that fills you. The Lord is your shepherd. And we're just temporary fill-ins. And then Paul goes on. And he gives us this phrase, in Christ, over and over. In Christ is your identity. In Christ is your hope. God wore me like a glove for a while, but the saving hand is his. And human leaders come and go, and some will disappoint you. Can I tell you real quick? Some will disappoint you bitterly. Hear me, this church will disappoint you. Hear me, I as your pastor will disappoint you. If I've not yet disappointed you, it's only because you don't know me well enough. The people who are closest to me are most disappointed in me, not least disappointed in me. The people who know me every day are most disappointed in me, not least disappointed in me. But I'm gonna tell you, Christ will never leave you and Christ will never forsake you and Christ will never disappoint you. So you put your roots there. Listen, there's two kinds of authority in the church. Good authority, where leaders use their power, privilege, and position to direct people to him. And there's bad authority, where leaders use their power, privilege, and position to direct people to themselves. Which leads me to the fourth one. A good Christian leader is a servant, a steward, a surrogate, 
and a spectacle of suffering. I know we won't like this one, but that's what Paul tells us. Look at verse nine of chapter four. He said, for I think that God has exhibited, he put us on display as apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed. We're buffeted. That's not buffeted, by the way. We're homeless. We label. We're working with our hands. We got two jobs. We got three jobs. We're not able to support ourselves and our ministry. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul says to Christian leaders, you should expect to suffer. In fact, you should expect to be a spectacle of suffering. I am convinced that most, if not all, of what leaders go through, they don't just go through for themselves. They go through what they go through for the people that are watching them. Paul said, we're a spectacle of suffering. And many leaders, they feel so shocked and scandalized when they suffer like God has somehow let his end of the deal. Hey God, I did my part. I was faithful. I did what you asked me to do. You were supposed to reward me. But this is what you do. And Paul says, yeah, that's what we're called to. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus. He lived perfectly and yet he suffered and died. Listen, you're going to experience suffering even at the hands of criticism sometimes. You have to be willing to endure it. I remember at one church I served at, my wife and I, we were having a really hard time because it was an established church and there were many people, particularly parents of kids that were in our ministry that did not want us to shake things up. And that's not really my personality to just come in and shake things up, but we were trying to move the ministry in a new direction. So people would stop our service and they would leave and they would go tell my pastor. So I remember one particular moment, my pastor was called me in, he wanted to have a conversation with me, and he was courteous and cordial, but somebody had told him that I had made a statement to the teenagers that I did not make, and so I said, who is the person, and I grabbed the phone right there in his office, and I called the person, and I said, would you get on speakerphone, everybody in your household, okay, and I want to tell you, this is what this girl said, mom and dad, listen to me, she's telling now the pastor, this is what I said, and so I said, is that what you said? And just, just confronted her right there. Well, this kept on going on. So finally, I was preaching one Wednesday night, and I was talking about how when we were praying for lost family members, the enemy will throw, us, throw things in our face that will discourage us. And I was praying for my sibling one time, really, really praying. And I got home from school one day, and when I got home from school, I saw my sibling doing something um, that I did not want to see doing with another person. And it was just in the same day I'd been praying for her, praying so hard. And I shared that, and so someone said that I had shared explicit, sexually explicit details. So the pastor called me in, and he said, hey, this is what they said you shared. And I said, no, didn't share that at all. And I said, I just need the name of the person who came and told you. And he said, I can't tell you. And I said, what do you mean you can't tell me? He said, well, they came to me and told me you did it, but they said I, I don't have the permission to tell them. And I said, okay, let me just let me get things real quick. I've only been here a year, but let me tell you, did you hire me as a pastor? Yes, I did. Did you hire me to be a leader in the body of Christ? Yes, I did. Okay, let me tell you, Matthew chapter 18 says, if somebody's got a problem with me, they need to come and talk to me. They don't need to be a coward and come talk to the person over me. And let me tell you, if somebody comes to you again and tells you something I've done, the first thing you need to do is pause them and say to them, have you talked to Craig about it? And if they haven't, then I want you to tell them to turn right back around and do it. And if not, then just go ahead and fire me now because I'm not coming on staff to be a person who's gonna constantly be cowered by criticism because people don't have the ability to do Matthew 18 and stand up and look at a person in the face and tell them what they have offense with. That's just the reality. 
you're gonna, you're, as a leader in the body of Christ, you're gonna have to be criticized and you're gonna have to let it be water off your back and it's gonna happen over and over and over again. And if you can't manage the expectation of that criticism, you won't make it as a leader. You won't make it. Which is why it's so important that your emotional health as a person grows. Paul says, listen, we're a spectacle of suffering. That's what we're called to. The, the Corinthians had bought into something Martha, Martin Luther called the theology of glory. Doesn't that sound good? All humans at all point in time have always bought into a theology of glory. You know what the theology of glory is? It's when you assume that God's presence on earth will always be accompanied by earthly vindications of success. What the New Testament teaches, though, is not a theology of glory. It's a theology of the cross. And the theology of the cross is the one who was most perfect on earth suffered the most. So what it tells us is the one in the church who's most endowed with the spirit of Jesus will suffer the most in the church. More power, more suffering. You want to be anointed? It's going to be harder for you. You want responsibility in the body of Christ? You're going to be ridiculed more. It's a theology of the cross, And by the way, don't miss Paul's brilliant example of what we call apostolic sarcasm. (laughs) I know sometimes we think Paul's so serious. Look at the wit of Paul right here. Okay, I'm almost finished. Look at the wit. This is what what he said. I got to read it like he's probably writing it, okay? He says, verse 8, Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. We apostles are fools for Christ, but you, nah, you're wise in Christ. We are weak. Oh, but you, no, no, you are strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. How do I know this is sarcasm? Because chapter one, he said in chapter one, not many of you are wise or noble or good looking. In fact, he started out the whole epistle and said, hey, look around everybody. Ain't nobody in here looks even halfway decent, okay? Ain't nobody in here is noble. All of you are dumb as a box of rocks. And God chose to use the dumb things of this world to confound the wise. And now what does he do? He gets to this point in his ministry and what's he trying to say? We apostles who suffer more than anyone, we should disabuse you of the idea that closeness with God equates to earthly success. You're not going to have earthly success just because you are growing in Christ-likeness. It's not an attended reality and fruit direct of your life that the closer you get to God, all of a sudden success is going to come. No, he said a Christian leader is going to suffer, and we shouldn't be surprised when it comes. I just got done reading another biography of a recent successful businessman who felt the call of God to leave Raleigh-Durham area his wife and two kids, and he resigned his high-paying executive job in corporate America. He left Raleigh-Durham to go live overseas in a Muslim UPG, unreached people group. So he did it. He resigned at his job. He gave up his sixth salary figure. He sold their house. They were getting trained to go for six months. And right when they said yes to God, their son developed a medical condition that was extremely severe and was very, very, required a lot of involvement. And he wrote this in his journal. Wait, Lord. It's not what's supposed to happen. We're submitted to your will for our lives. We sold everything we have. We are disassembling the entire American dream Lego by Lego. We're leaving everything, everyone familiar. We're moving our family away from the medical capital of the Southeast to a place with little to no health care, hostile to the gospel to be your witnesses. And then you do this. And he said, I had feelings of unfair. And God, you've forgotten us. And later, he said, I learned this is all part of the process through the suffering, 
through the criticism, through the slander, through the difficulty, through the unfair treatment, Christ was revealed in them. And watch this. He was made better known through them. And he loved this quote by A.W. Tozer where he said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly before he first hurts him deeply. Or to quote Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. But in only to know his power of his resurrection, I've got to have participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Listen to me, church. The fellowship of his suffering is the only way to the power of his resurrection. There's a famous story about St. Dominic. He was a 12th century monk. Think of him like an early reformer in the church. This is so powerful. He visited the Pope one day in the 12th century, and the Pope was visited by, was surrounded by all the wealth and splendor of medieval Rome. All, he had everything at his fingertips. And he goes into the Pope, and the Pope, who thinks himself as Peter, right? First, first Roman papacy. The Pope looks at him and says, Hey, St. Dominic, I guess Peter can no longer say, like he did in Acts 3, Silver and gold, I have none. And St. Dominic replied and looked at the Pope and said, Yep, but Peter can't also say anymore, Rise up and walk. Because with the increase of silver and gold, what comes with it is the decrease of the resurrection of Jesus. The more comfortable I am, the less power I have. The more earthly success I gain, the less anointed I become. I only gain the power of his resurrection when I participate in his sufferings. Parents, do you feel wrong by your kids? It's a part of the process of God bringing salvation into their lives. And I want to tell you, mom and dad, suffer well, suffer patiently. Your suffering is the vehicle whereby the resurrection power will save your teenager. Suffer well. Suffer well. You're getting unfair treatment and pushback from your friends that are trying to help. The wrongest I've ever been treated in my life is just by people I'm trying to help, just trying to make good decisions. If that's what you're suffering today, I want to tell you, suffer well. It's a point of the, the process. Are you a Christian leader? Are you a pastor? Are you a missionary? Are you listening live stream or maybe even the podcast? You're wondering, why in the world are people treating me so unfairly? Suffer well, my friend, because it's the power of the resurrection that comes through the fellowship of the sufferings of the cross. And many people have turned ministry into an idol. Big power, big pulpit. And I want to tell you today, God can't bless that kind of power. Or at least he can't bless it for the long term. You have to lay it on the altar. You have to be a servant. You have to be a steward. You have to expect to suffer. And then your ministry has power. How many of you have ever heard of the great Christian artist Keith Green? Anybody remember him? Great Christian musical artist. He died in a plane wreck, I think, 1983. I watched an interview with Keith Green. And it was so powerful. Listen, Keith Green was a powerful musician. He gets born again and he starts using his instrumental ability to serve the body of Christ. And he said, music became my idol. So he said, you know what I did? I laid down music for like a year and a half. He said, God, I just want to serve. I know I'm gifted as a musician. I just want to serve. And you know what happened after the year and a half? God said, pick back up that instrument, Keith. And I want you to play. And you know what happens? If you, they interviewed people and said from that point on, there was an anointing and there was a resurrection power that filled his music that was not there before. Why? Why? 
Because God only resurrects the things that you let die. Whatever leadership ambition you have today, if you don't let it die, God won't resurrect it. If whatever talents and abilities I have that I want to be displayed for everybody else and even in good ambition for the kingdom of God, I have to let it die and then God resurrects it. When my wife and I were at Free Chapel and we were wanting to church plant and we knew God wanted us to church plant, you know what we did in 2010? We took the desires of God and we let them die. In fact, we crucified them ourselves and we submitted ourselves to another pastor for five years. And in that five years, you know what God resurrected in our hearts? The desire to plant. Listen, if you you want to know what God wants to do with your life, take every desire you have and kill it. Slay it and crucify it. And when you do, God will resurrect the thing that he wants from you. And then when you do what he wants for you, you will have proven to yourself and your mind and every doubt that you face from then on out that this is what God wants you to do and not what you want to do. And then when the going gets tough, you won't bug out or quit because you know it comes from God's resurrection power and not your own selfish ambition. And when you will submit, if you will take what you desire to do and kill it, then and only then will God's resurrection power fill it. God can only resurrect things that we let die. If we try to resuscitate them, they will never be used. But when we let them die, God will resurrect them. That's the way of the cross. That's the way of the kingdom. Paul said, you've got to be a servant, a steward, a surrogate and a sufferer. A few years ago, I heard a mega pastor say, pastor's one of the largest churches. He said a pastor should no longer work, in his words, in the church. He should work on the church. And what he meant was that when pastors get large churches, they should no longer serve or live in accountable relationships or do the hard work of relationship building and sharing Christ and sacrificial generosity. He said, your greatest service is to be a CEO of an effective organization that helps other people do those things. I want you to know that we fundamentally reject that idea of leadership in this church. And now, no matter how large this church gets, no matter how long this church stays in this community, we will reject that idea of leadership till our dying. We want our team, our elders, our leaders, our deacons to possess and model servanthood and stewardship and suffering and surrogate leadership of generosity to be accountable in connect groups to share Christ with other people and say, don't just listen to what I say, do what I do. Live how I live. And by the way, the pastor who tragically made that statement was the one who ended up abusing his power and falling from ministry. Why? Because God did not design leaders for the stage and he did not design leaders for the spotlight. He designed them for the towel and the wash basin to wash people's feet like Jesus did. It's the only place there's resurrection power. It's the only safe place in the kingdom. Now let me close with a very important, special word. I want you to hear me. Some of you, even here today, you've been hurt in the past by spiritual authority. And I want to say to you, if you've been hurt by spiritual authority, I am sorry. For a person to abuse spiritual authority and hurt other people is a horrible sin. It's a horrible sin, and I'm sorry. And God had nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. He was nowhere near it. Whatever wrong words, whatever spiritual abuse has happened, it is not from God. And I want to tell you as a pastor, you should always feel free to flee spiritual abuse of any kind. 
And when this gathering's over, we'd like to help if we can. I want to tell you, I'll be down here in the altar. You want to share with somebody about how you've been hurt? You can share with me. You can communicate. Well, I'll stand in. I'll say sorry. If it's something I've done, I'll say sorry. I have no, no qualms about that whatsoever. But I want to tell you, as long as I'm the pastor of this congregation, it will be our desire and it will be our aim. It will be our aim to equip and empower God's people for the work of ministry that God has called you to do. That's it. That's it. That's my only aim. That's our only desire. That you might what? Be and do what God has called you to do. Would you bow your heads with me across the room? I want to lead you just in a moment of reflection for a moment as we conclude 2021. If you're a leader in this room, are you seeking to lead like this? Servant, steward, surrogate, sufferer. I want to ask all of you, have you put yourself under spiritual authority? Who do you submit to? If the answer is no one, that's a problem. Proverbs chapter 18 says, An isolated man will end up seeking his own desire and will rage against sound judgment. As we often say around here, the, the things that grow in a secret garden always grow mutant. They grow cancerous. God wants us all to be under godly leadership and authority, to surround ourselves with people who will push back and will call things out of us. My question for you is, have you put yourself under leadership like that? And if you haven't, you have a great opportunity in January, January 25th. We have our next membership. You can join. You can say, you know what? This is a place God wants me to be a member, to belong to people and to his kingdom, his body. So be it, Lord. You can do that in January. Some of you just feel like you're starting the process and you're ready to learn more about Jesus. You can join growth phases in January. I'll be your teacher in foundation phase. We'll talk about what it means to follow Christ, to be the righteousness of Christ, and know your identity in Jesus. To realize that God doesn't frown upon you or is mad at you, but is overly joyous, passionate about friendship and communion with you. Where do you need God to help you in your leadership in 2022? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. 